Well, good morning again. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to gather together and worship your name. And God, now I ask that you speak to us through your word. God, may the, the words that I say not be my words, God, but your words. And God, may you give each and every one of us here open hearts and open ears to receive what you want to speak to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, language is pretty cool. Uh, like the English language, other languages, like the idea of languages is really cool. Now, I'm not a linguist. I'm not, you know, I did okay in English class in middle school, high school, um, and in college. I did okay, right? But but there's some cool things about language. One of those cool things is this, this type of phrase in our English language, and I, I'm, I'm fairly certain it's in other languages as well. I took German in high school, and I, I may have paid a little bit of attention, and I don't remember if they mentioned it, but there's this phrase in our English language that we call idioms. Idioms. You got to be careful when you say it, because you might you might offend somebody. Uh, if you say it too fast, they might be thinking you're calling them, you know, something else. But an idiom, and, and, and if you don't know what this is, an idiom is a phrase, typically a common phrase, a cultural phrase that we know that is typically figurative. And, uh, and I'm going to, I took this from, from a website, so bear with me here. Usually the words in this phrase are not understandable at first glance. When, when you say the, the phrase, if you look literally at the words, you'd be like, that makes zero sense. Let me give you uh, a few examples of this. Feeling under the weather, right? We use that phrase. That's an idiom. If you took those words literally, it makes no sense. What do you mean you feel under? You're always under weather, right? But we use feeling under the weather to mean that you are feeling unwell. You're sick. You call your boss. I am under the weather. Now, what's, uh, one thing I'm fascinated by with language uh, is where we get our words from or where we get phrases from. Uh, and so, of course, I had to look up where do we get these idioms from. And so, feeling under the weather, the origin of this phrase is actually nautical in nature. Um, when a sailor was sick, he would go beneath the bow of the ship, which is the front of the boat, and it would protect them from harmful conditions out on the boat. He was quite literally under the bad weather that was making him sick. That's where we get the phrase, under the weather. Let me give you another example. Turn a blind eye. Right? You would use this to mean that you're refusing to acknowledge a known truth or you're ignoring something that you actually do know. Right? Maybe you've turned a blind eye to something someone did. Now, this one has some disputed origins, but the most widely accepted one is from a, again, nautical. There's kind of a, there's not a theme here, but there kind of is. Um, not to my message, though. Uh, it's a comment made by British Admiral Horatio Nelson. 
Uh, Nelson was blind in one of his eyes, and during a battle in 1801, uh, one of his uh, inferiors gave advice to retreat and disengage from the battle. But the British admiral thought that they could win if they just kept pushing forward. And so supposedly he took his telescope and he put it up to his blind eye and said, keep going forward. Supposedly, he made a comment later saying that he reserved the right to use his blind eye every now and again. And that's where we get the phrase, turn a blind eye. Last one is how the tables have turned. Or if you're an office fan like me, how the turntables have turned. Michael Scott quote there. This one, uh, it means that the person who was in a disadvantage is now in an advantage, vice versa. That actually comes from backgammon. The game backgammon, other table games as well. If someone literally turned the tables in backgammon, the, the odds would change on who's winning. I've never played backgammon before. I had to actually Google what backgammon was. I don't know if that shows my age or what, but uh, there you go. So today's text is very much an example of that last idiom, how the tables have turned. The tables are very much turning in our story. For Haman, for Mordecai, for the Jewish people. And the way this almost happens, as Elliot read, is almost comical. It's, it's kind of funny how this all happens. But before we dive into the text, I want to get make sure everybody is up to speed with where we're at in the story. Maybe you've missed a couple weeks, or for our kids who have been down in King's Kids for the past couple weeks, I want to catch you up to the story of Esther, but sometimes it's a lot easier if you don't hear it from the person who's about to speak for a while. So I've actually found a video that will recap the entire story of Esther thus far, so go ahead and watch the screen. God's story, Esther. So part of God's story is about a woman named Esther, and it goes... God's story, Esther. God's story, Esther. So part of God's story is about a woman named Esther, and it goes like this. Esther was adopted by her cousin God's story, Esther. So part of God's story is about a woman named Esther, and it goes like this. Esther was adopted by her cousin Mordecai because her parents died. She and Mordecai were Jewish, which means they were part of God's special family. Our story begins right before Esther becomes queen. And God's we lost the video, so I will do a quick little recap for you. So you've got Esther, and you've got Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's adopted. Uh, they were cousins, but he adopts Esther into the family. And, and they are living in Persia, this area uh, that the Jewish people, some of them, were in captivity in. And uh, the king, Xerxes, has this, he's this great king, and he's got this beautiful wife, Vashti, and so he's throwing this huge party, and he wants Vashti to come out, and he wants to parade Vashti around, show everybody uh, how beautiful she is, and she goes, no. And so the king says, well, you're not my queen anymore. And so he kicks Vashti out, and so the king needs a new queen, and so he holds this beauty pageant to find this new queen, and he chooses Esther. One thing to note is Mordecai and Esther are Jewish. That's important to the story here. And so what happens then is Mordecai works at the king's gate, and he overhears a plot to kill the king. And so he goes and tells Queen Esther now 
that there was a plot to kill the king. Esther tells the king. The king kills the two people that tried to kill him. And then he makes Haman, this powerful man. Haman is not a Jew. And so Haman, thinking he's the coolest man ever, tells the people at the king's gate, working at the king's gate, that they have to bow down to Haman. Mordecai refuses, and Haman, who thinks he's a big deal, gets really mad at Mordecai and decides, all right, I'm going to have all of the Jewish people killed. Drastic in the story here. And so he goes to the king, and the king approves it, but the king doesn't really know what's going on. And so the king says, okay, fine, you can make that law. And so they make the law, and it would happen a few months from now, all of the Jewish people would be killed. And so at this point in the story, the Jewish people are terribly sad because they're going to die. It's not particularly happy for them. And so what happens uh, a little later is Esther and, let me back up a little bit, Esther uh, wants to have a party, right? And so says, uh, getting all my story messed up here. The king says, Esther, what would you like? Anything you want. Esther says, I want to have dinner with you and Haman. Weird, but okay, great, let's have dinner. And so they have dinner together. And then, at the dinner, the king goes, Esther, what, what would you like? She goes, how about dinner again with Haman and you tomorrow? Sounds good. The king likes food. Haman likes food. Haman is power hungry. He's got a lot of power. So he goes home, and the issue is, is Haman really can't be happy about all of this because he still sees Mordecai every day. And it, Mordecai makes him mad. And so he decides that night that the next day he's going to go to the king and he is going to have Mordecai killed the next morning. And that is where we find ourselves in the story in Esther chapter 6. Haman angry at Mordecai, ready to go to the king to have Mordecai killed. And the king can't sleep. Let's reread Esther chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition had Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. And so, as we started our study of Esther a few weeks ago, we made mention that there is no direct mention of God in this book. God is not directly mentioned in this book. It's what makes it so unique in the Bible. But God is not absent in the story of Esther. And I think it is clear from the first two verses, God is not absent. First, you have the king not being able to sleep. Why is that? Why is the king not able to sleep? Is it because he's anticipating what Esther is going to say at this second banquet? Is it a coincidence? Is it, was the king, was he a chronic 
insomniac that couldn't fall asleep? Or was it divine providence from God? I think at least some of it's the last one there. And so the king, who's sleepless, decides to have the records of his reign, the chronicles of his reign, read to him. I don't know about you, I would probably suggest that as well if I wanted to fall asleep, because that does not sound like very exciting reading for to try and stay awake. But regardless of why he has it read, the king gets read the record of how Mordecai saved him from a plot to kill him. And now Persian kings were were known for honoring those who were loyal to them. They, they liked to do that. They liked to give some of their kind of honor to people who were loyal to them. And so King Xerxes asked, what did they do to honor Mordecai for his act of loyalty? And the answer is nothing. Again, think a little bit of God behind the scenes in this moment. And if you read the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, you might be a little confused because right after Mordecai saves the king by telling Esther about this plot, Haman is elevated to a position of power. And you go, wait a minute, who's this Haman guy? And why isn't Mordecai honored immediately? Could it be that God in his wisdom and knowledge and power was saving the honor for Mordecai for just a time as this. Let's keep reading. The king says, who is in the court? He wants to immediately honor Mordecai. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Well, bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Uh, If you need another example of God being in the background of the story, it's it's right here. The king goes, great, let's, let's honor Mordecai right now. Who's in the court? Who can I Who's, who's someone that I can ask their opinion on? And Haman, strolling into the court, probably early in the morning, thinking, I'm about to go to the king. He just woke up. He's got nobody else bothering him right now, so I'm going to go bother him about killing Mordecai. And the, his attendants say, oh, Haman's actually in the court. Well, bring him in. Haman, probably thinking, great, this is awesome. Here we go. Has no idea what is about to happen. You can begin to feel the table start to turn in this moment. So the king asks Haman what should be done for the man the king wants to honor. But it's important to remember the king does not know about this feud between Haman and Mordecai. And this is where we see Haman's downfall begin. Haman thinks to himself, well, who else could the king possibly want to honor? I'm the man. I'm amazing. I've been given the king's ring to pass into law the extermination of the Jewish people. I'm going to have Mordecai killed today. I'm awesome. So clearly he's asking me because he's going to honor me some more. 
And so Mordecai answers the king like he is going to be the recipient of the honor in verse 7. He answers the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on horse throughout the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. We don't get to see how Haman responds to this, but I got to believe it. It was stunned silence. Huh? What? Mordecai? I was just coming to tell you how I was going to impale him on a pole, and now you, what? It's almost funny how this all happens. I read it, and I laugh. I was like, this is hilarious. But there's also a sadness to it, which we'll get to in just a minute. So the rest of the story, Haman has to parade Mordecai around the city, pronouncing Mordecai as the one the king delights to honor. It's hilarious. Can you imagine the shame that Haman must feel, the embarrassment, the utter disgust of what he has to do to the person that he thought he was about to have killed that morning? This may have made Mordecai happy, maybe puffed up Mordecai's ego a little bit. Maybe he feels super important all of the sudden, or does it? Because if you keep reading, what does Mordecai do when the parade is over? Verse 12 tells us Mordecai returns to the king's gate. He just goes back to what he was doing. He goes back to his job. Haman rushes home. He's embarrassed. By the situation. They say he covers his head, which was a sign of great grief or embarrassment. It's the same thing that Job does when he loses everything. Haman's broken by the situation. And so we can laugh, we can be happy for the change of fortune for Mordecai, we can laugh at, at Haman and the embarrassment. But while we celebrate God working in this story, we can also, with sadness, look at Haman and see a pretty sad part of the story. Because what we see is we see how pride led Haman to the point where we're at in the story. See, Haman was blinded by pride. And the reality is his pride is a blinding killer. We could define pride as thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to, right? Up to this point, we don't see anything that Haman has done to deserve the power and the honor that he's been given by the king. There's nothing in the story that tells us that Haman's awesome. He's placed a higher elevation next to the king, and all of a sudden, Haman thinks... He's the bee's knees. 
His pride becomes the stumbling block that leads to his downfall. Haman doesn't think of anybody but himself. When the king approaches him and says, hey, what, what, what should we do with the one the king wants to honor? Haman can't even fathom that there's somebody else in the whole kingdom that the king would want to honor except for him. Why would there be? Why would the king think of anybody else when he's standing in front of greatness? Haman's probably thinking. See, pride makes us blind. It makes us blind to the world around us. It makes us blind to the shortcomings of ourselves. Now, Scripture is very clear about what pride is and the dangers of pride. But one place I want to show us is in in Proverbs 3. Solomon writes this, He, God, mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. The wise inherit honor, but fools only get shame. Who does that sound like? Sounds a lot like Haman and Mordecai. Haman is shamed and Mordecai, the humble man who didn't demand anything for saving the king, is honored in front of the boastful and prideful Haman. Now you can look at this story and if you're like me, you see Haman and you just can't believe that someone is that prideful. Like you look at it and you just go, that is unbelievable. Haman, nobody is like that in real life, or you're thinking, I know exactly who that is in my life. I know a Haman in my own life, right? But I think we may be more like Haman than we want to believe when it comes to pride. We allow pride to control us and to blind us to the realities around us. Maybe you feel like you're the best person at work. That, that you know everything that there is to know with your work, that, that if you were to leave, the whole place would fall apart. I've heard that at places I've worked before. And so, you're awesome. You've got all the knowledge you need and so everybody else that you work with, all your other coworkers are dumb. They're incompetent. They can't do anything right. So I'll just do it for them. And when my boss comes around, I'm going to make sure that they know I did that work. That so-and-so couldn't do it, so I did it for them. And suddenly you find yourself noticing every little mistake that your coworkers make, and you never see the good things they do. They're just worthless people sucking up money for the company. I should get a better raise because I'm the best worker. It's the blinding of pride. Or maybe, kids, you're the smartest kid in your class. You get all the A's, but your friend struggles. And you think to yourself, How can they not solve this math problem? It's so easy. How can they be so dumb? It's the easiest math problem. And so rather than helping them, you think, well, I've got extra time. I'm just going to hang out now because I finished the problem and I'm not going to help my friend. 
You don't care that your friends are struggling and you refuse to help because I'm the smartest one in the class. I don't need help, so why would anybody, why would I help anybody else? Pride in our lives. Pride blinds us, but pride also leads us into further sin. Pride led Haman to arrogance, which led to anger, and ultimately to a desire to kill Mordecai. But not just that, he was mad at Mordecai, so he said, I'm going to kill all of Mordecai's people. The mindset of that is because pride, he was arrogant. Pride is easily one of the most destructive sins. It can lead us to be arrogant, but it can lead us to become angry, to hate others. It's dangerous. But perhaps the most dangerous type of pride is spiritual pride. It's a sort of arrogant attitude that believes that you are the best when it comes to spiritual things. Might be a comparison type of pride. Well, so-and-so didn't come to church for weeks. I saw that they haven't been here for weeks. I've been here every single week. What's wrong with them? You don't know what's going on in their lives. And so all of a sudden you start questioning if they're actually a Christian. Because, well, they don't come to church. Or, I read my Bible 20 times and five devotionals before 6 a.m. every single day. What do you do with your quiet time for God? Oh, you don't have quiet time for God. Hmm. Now, I may be over-exaggerating there a little bit. I might be a little over-dramatic, but I have a feeling some of us have been there. Spiritual pride can also come in the form of thinking that somehow we are doing things on our own that make us good before God. I go to church. I serve in the children's ministry. I read my Bible. I mumble through the worship songs sometimes, occasionally. I only fall asleep once a month in church. Why wouldn't God be happy with me? Why, why wouldn't God want to honor me for all the good things that I'm doing for him? Yikes. Yikes. J.C. Ryle, who is a, a 19th century Anglican bishop, uh, has this incredible quote about pride. I, I found it as I was studying for this message, and, and, and I was like, I, I, wanna, I was trying to find a really good quote about pride, and, and I, this popped up, and I was like, oh man, this is, this is, this is the money quote here. J.C. Ryle says this, Let us watch against pride in every shape. Pride of intellect, pride of wealth, pride in our own goodness, pride in our own deserts. Nothing is so likely to keep a man out of heaven and prevent him seeing Christ as pride. So long as we think we are something, we shall never be saved. Wow. Scripture is very clear on who we are. We are Wretched, sinful, broken people, unable to be in a right relationship with God because of sin. But pride blinds us to the nature of who we really are. We think we're something. That we deserve honor and glory 
when we don't deserve any of it. But it also blinds us to the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus, God in the flesh, had no need to come to earth. Jesus had no need to put on flesh. He didn't need to live the perfect life, and he certainly didn't need to die on the cross. He willingly came and gave himself up. God has and had every right to think highly of himself. He's God. He created everything. If there's any person who has the right to think as highly as he wants of himself, it's God. Yet what does God do? God humbles himself, takes on flesh, becomes a servant to humanity to sacrifice himself on the cross so that you and I can be in right relationship with God. We can be forgiven of our sins, freed from our pride. But what does it require? As the band comes forward, I'm going to answer that. It requires, well, some of you might say, oh, nothing. It requires nothing. Yeah, it requires faith. But faith requires a move to humility. We have to put away our pride to submit to God, admitting that we are absolutely nothing without him. Too often we want to earn salvation by our own good deeds, by our own merits, that we are something and we can do something about our own problem. That we can save ourselves. Jesus in Matthew 23, 12 says, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Not only is that a picture of Esther chapter 6, but it's a picture of us. We have to put away pride. We have to turn away from it, to move to humility, to say, I am nothing without God. And so we can ask ourselves the other question. The king asks, who's the man the king delights to honor? It's the one who humbles themselves. The one who loses their life and yet finds it in Christ. The one who throws away pride and arrogance. And when we do that, when we submit ourselves to Christ, when we admit we're a sinner broken in need of a Savior, it is then that God in His mercy and in His kindness puts on the robe of honor the robe of righteousness that belongs to him and he puts it on us because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we've done. Just like King Xerxes who honors Mordecai. The king honors us when we admit we are nothing and we need him. 
You see, pride makes us blind, but humility opens our eyes to Jesus. Humility opens our eyes to Jesus. And it is only by Him, only by the graciousness of the King, only because of God's own humility that we are given the opportunity to be in a right relationship with Him, to be saved from our pride. It is only by the sacrifice of Jesus that you and I have any hope. But it is in that hope that we are exalted with Jesus forever to the praise and to the glory of God, not ourselves. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. God, I I'm grateful to be here, to to be able to read from your word and, and God, to give you the glory. God, help us to see in our lives where pride is blinding us, blinding us to maybe ourselves or to the people around us. God, maybe where pride has broken us and caused us to sin even more. God, help us to to have a right view of ourselves. A view that says that, God, we don't deserve any glory and honor. You deserve it all. God, help us to push pride away from our lives and embrace humility that says that we need you every moment of our lives. God, help us to live that way today and every single day looking to you in everything we do. God, we thank you. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.